Well, welcome everyone to Foothills Christian Church. Uh, if you're watching online for the first time or visiting on campus for the first time, we are glad you are with us. Foothills is a place where we're going to coach you up in your faith. Uh, we believe that, that what you believe is one of the most important things about you. And so we want you to connect to Jesus, connect to community or family, and to connect to your mission in life. Uh, this all helps you grow strong, and that's what we're about. And I'll tell you, there's so much going on during this Christmas season. It's very, very exciting, uh, especially people who are going to be inviting uh, people. Here's a, an invite card. You can grab one on your way out. It even has a QR code on there so you can register for uh, service. Now, if you register for a service and something comes up, you know, you get a flat tire or the turkey gets burnt or something, I don't know, and you have to change to a different service, don't worry about it. This just really, though, helps us uh, kind of get spacing and also manage parking. I'm very concerned about people losing their faith in the parking lot. So uh, we, don't, we don't want that to happen. To, uh, lots of other Christmas things are going on. Are you a young married couple and you want to meet other young married couples? Uh, the young marrieds group is going to be having a Christmas party next Saturday. You're invited. Uh, Zach and Kendall will be out by the Connection Point after service today, if you want to go and just ask them where it's at and what to bring and that kind of stuff, but love to have you. Uh, enjoy that. Also on Christmas Eve, uh, as we get everybody spaced out, I just want to give you a little special clue. We're going to do a special song uh, that's going to be really cool that they've come up with. But in order to do this song, we have to bring a whole lot of instruments out onto the stage to do this. So it's going to be loud. And I'm excited about that. I'm very excited about that. So it's going to be great. CBO challenge, boy, it just keeps growing. And so I hope you uh, pray and ask how the Lord wants to move through you to meet that challenge because there could be some really phenomenal things that we're going to be able to do over and above a lot of our normal ministry, which is very important. Our commitment to discipleship and to student and children's uh, is one of the things that we keep going without any question, and so we invest heavily in that. But we're going to do some new things. Uh, financial peace is going to be coming in January. You're not going to miss financial peace. Uh, boy, it's the best way to get things in your house in order financially. Uh, we want to do a how to be married workshop. And this is for anybody who's single or not, uh, who wants to learn just basic skills on how to be married and how that works. We want to expand our discipleship to women and men. Uh, men do a big thing called boot camp. Uh, very excited about that. There's lots of stuff going on next year in the Christ birthday offering. Really helps us expand that, invest in it, and see things happening. Now, we're in a series. It's called Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. And last week, we talked about how the birth of Jesus brought a new kingdom into this world, right? Uh, up until that point, uh, God's kingdom had not been established within the material context of this world because it was the kingdom of this world. So the birth of Jesus wasn't just the birth of a baby, but it was the birth of a king. And this week we're going to talk about how the birth of Jesus brought about uh, the fact that he is the perfect king. And the reason why is because his birth celebrates the new kingdom and his new kingdom never ends. His kingdom always wins. And that makes him the perfect king. So let's go to the scriptures and let's read the Bible together and kind of see there's a lot of stuff I'm going to read. And so I'm just going to go and read and 
You, if you didn't bring your Bible, that's fine, because the uh, verses will be up on the screen. We're going to start with Isaiah chapter 9, beginning with verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You will multiply the nation, you will increase their joy, they will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoils. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor. So he's going to break the yoke of their burden, the staff on their shoulders, and the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, the cloak rolled in blood will be burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness and from then on and forevermore." And the zeal of the armies of the Lord will accomplish this. So that gives you an idea that it's more than just a child being born, but a new kingdom is coming. If you uh, flip forward to Daniel, there's lots of Old Testament prophecies about this. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, it says the following, Listen to the description of this prophetic statement about the coming king and the kingdom. Now, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people, for it will crush and put an end to all of these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever." Another Old Testament prophecy is in uh, Zechariah, and this is chapter uh, 14, verse 9. Listen to this verse. And the Lord will be king over all the earth, and in that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name will be the only name. Now, if we flip back over to Daniel uh, chapter 7. And I want to read to you verse 13, where it says this. Uh, I think it's verse 13. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of the heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Now, this is a side note. I just want you to know. This is why Jesus always called himself the son of man, because he was referencing this prophecy in Daniel that the Jewish people were very familiar with. Okay, so that's why that's Jesus always saying, and so listen to what he's calling himself whenever he says, I am the son of man. He goes, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days. So this is a reference to God Almighty. He says, he was presented before him and to him was given what? Dominion, glory, and a kingdom 
that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. So you're getting a picture here of all these Old Testament prophecies about the birth of Jesus is a birth of a new kingdom here on earth. And what's interesting is that Jesus references this. So if we go all the way up to uh, Matthew chapter 4, okay, and the Matthew chapter 4 starts with the temptation of Jesus Christ, 40 days in the wilderness. And this is what happens right before his earthly ministry begins, right? And then in verse 17, it says this. Uh, well, verse 12, it says he starts his ministry, and then verse 17 says this. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, and this is what he preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or it is near. Now, if we flip over to Matthew chapter 10, I want to read verses uh, 5, 6, and 7, which says this. He sends the 12 out to preach for the very first time without him. And this, listen to what he tells them. He says, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he says, I want you to go just to Jewish people first. He says, and as you go, I want you to preach. And then he tells them what to say when they preach, right? He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if you don't mind me being mildly salty and controversial, uh, though this is true, uh, when we say that Jesus loves you, that's true. What Jesus told his disciples to preach isn't Jesus loves you. He said, you should preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Isn't that an interesting distinction? So he, that's what he said to preach. When you read Matthew, when you read Luke, when you read about all the parables that Jesus told, what you start to find is that almost every parable, particularly Matthew, starts with the kingdom of heaven is like this. And then he goes on to tell a parable. So no doubt, there is no doubt based on the Old Testament prophecies and the New Testament words of Jesus himself, that the birth of Jesus Christ is the birth of a new kingdom. These verses in the Old Testament and New Testament, what they tell us is that this kingdom is eternal. This kingdom will destroy all other, defeat all other kingdoms raised up against it. This kingdom never ends. It is a kingdom of righteousness and justice and mercy and peace and love. And this kingdom unequivocally is built upon the cornerstone called the Son of Man Jesus Christ himself. So the government, this new kingdom rests 100% on his shoulders. Okay? So this is why Jesus is the perfect king, because he always wins. I mean, he is winner, winner, chicken dinner, friends. Right here, Jesus is, and his kingdom is undefeated. His kingdom is batting a thousand. And that's what's amazing. Let me give you just a, a run through history real quick, okay? To kind of give you an idea of how many 
earthly kingdoms have risen up against the church, the kingdom of God, and try to defeat it. First, there was the Jewish leadership themselves. If you flip over to Acts um, chapter 4, Beginning with uh, verse 18, it says, The Jewish leadership had summoned the disciples, particularly Peter and John, right? And they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. You can go out and you teach about Moses, you can teach about God, but do not preach or teach anything in the name of Jesus. So Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge because we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. He didn't say we can't stop preaching about what we know is true. It was true, but it's so fast. He says, we saw it. We have seen it with our own eyes and we cannot stop testifying to that. And from that moment on, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem at that time, did all they could. They arrested them. They had them beaten with rods. They took their property. They threw them in jail in order to stop them. And guess what happened? They could not defeat the kingdom of Jesus. Shortly thereafter this, about 30 years later, the Romans decided to take a real dim view of Christianity. Basically what started the super bad rap of Christians is Emperor Nero, who reigned between 54 AD and 68 AD, and he's the one who's uh, credited with executing the Apostle Paul and executing the Apostle Peter. But what happened is uh, Nero decided that he wanted to rebuild a portion of Rome. And at the current time, the Senate wouldn't allow them to seize the property to do that. And so what he did is he had some uh, uh, ruffians go in there and start a fire because he wanted to burn this little part down. Then he wanted to come in and say, well, the government, well, you know, I'll help you rebuild it. It'll be awesome. Well, the fire got out of control and they couldn't stop and it burned down a third of the city of Rome. So a lot of people were very unhappy and they wanted to know who started it. And so you know what Nero said? What's those weird people, the Christians who did it? And that's kind of where the persecution started under Nero. But then about a oh, hundred years later, there was another massive persecution against the Christians in Rome in 161 through 180 under the emperor Marcus Aurelius. And then there was Decius in uh, 249, 250. It was a two-year It was a persecution throughout the entire empire of Rome, throughout all of its uh, sub-nations and provinces, okay? It was by order of the emperor Decius, persecute Christians. They should be arrested and killed on sight. Then there was uh, Valentinus in 257 and 258. That was really bad. But one of the worst persecutions of all was under Diocletian. And he reigned between 303 and 312. And what's really fascinating is one of the most severe uh, persecutions of Christians under the Roman emperor was Diocletian all the way up to 312. And then guess what happened in 312? Diocletian died and Constantine became the next emperor. And in 313, February of 313, they passed the Edict of Milan. 
in the Edict of Milan is infamous for all you Roman historians. I'm sure you're very familiar with this. But the Edict of Milan basically said that Christianity is a recognized and legal belief system of faith, and they can no longer be persecuted at all. And all the property that was seized from them had to be returned. That was the Edict of Milan. So isn't it interesting, the worst persecution in Roman history happened right before the pendulum swung the other way, and they became free, they got their property back, and they became uh, legally recognized as a faith in Rome. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like, you know, the darkest time before dawn, you know, it's right before dawn, you know, and then boom, it happens. Uh, Now, shortly thereafter, in the late fourth century, the Western Roman Empire started to collapse because the Visigoths and the Vandals and the Gauls all came in. These guys right here came in. And the one guy was Alaric the Barbarian. And he came in and he sacked Rome and he seized a bunch of provinces and governances. And he was not a fan of Christianity at all. These Gauls came down. They called them barbarians, mostly because they weren't Romans. But uh, they were obviously fairly organized and very very well equipped because their military conquered the Roman legions. And so they came in and they didn't like Christianity at all. They thought Christianity was too weak. And what's fascinating is that within a century, almost all the Gauls and Visigoths all became Christians. They were all converted to Christianity in a very short period of time. This happened between 395 and 410 when it fell. Then what that's happening up in Western Europe, if you go back down into the Arabian Peninsula during the 6th century, is Muhammad uh, came in Islam. And in, the, in that, uh, excuse me, 7th century, it was the late 600s, what happened is, early 600s, excuse me, is that he basically, from a military standpoint, conquered the entire Arabian Peninsula. And he did that by eradicating Judaism and Christianity. When he was in Medina, right before he went back to Mecca, he had 800 Jewish men beheaded in one day. Okay, And so he just wiped out. He did not like Christianity. He did not like uh, Judaism at all. And that's where a lot of the hostility still happened. And then what we have is we have uh, over a thousand years of history of them trying to wipe it out right? Trying to wipe out the kingdom of God. You have the Rashidian Caliphate, which was between 632 and 661. Then you had the Umayyad Caliphate that took over all of North Africa and then started to push up. They went across the Strait of Gibraltar into Spain. That happened all the way up to 750. And then you had the Abbasid Caliphate, and there's a whole bunch of sub ones under there, uh, kind of different ones, but they all kind of cluster them together in the Abbasid Caliphate from 750 all the way up to the 1400, 1500s. And then that's when the Ottoman Caliphate took over, the Ottoman Empire. And it went from 1500 all the way up until 1924. So it lasted a long time. What a lot of people don't realize is that the Ottoman Caliphate had one goal in mind during their expansion. And their whole goal was, we want to march up into Europe, we want to march down, we want to take our armies down the, uh, the Italian peninsula, and we want to conquer Rome. That was their one goal, was conquer Rome. And the reason why is because in their mind, religion and governance were intimately linked. They are exactly the same thing. They, they are the religion. And so in order to defeat everybody and defeat all of these political empires, what they had to do is they had to defeat the religion of Christianity. 
And a lot of people are not aware of this, but what happened is in 1600, 1683 to be exact, they marched west and they stopped at the gateway to Western Europe, which was Vienna, okay, at that time led by the Habsburgs. And they sieged Vienna. If Vienna fell, then all of Europe would be open to the Ottoman Empire. And what happened is there was a strong believer from Poland named Sobieski who came down, right, because he believed the Lord told him to go down and help defend Vienna. And they had never been allies ever. But because the Lord told him to do that, he took his army down there. And on September 12th, 1683, they defeated the Ottoman Empire and in essence ended all of their expansion into Europe right there at that one battle. That's why September 11th is such a big deal to Islamic expansionists, right? And that's why Osama bin Laden attacked in 2001 on September 11th, because that was the point when they had stopped expanding. And and then their position is the only time we succeed and fulfill the mission of our faith is to expand. And once we stop expanding, that's when we have problems. So it's really interesting is that Islam for a very, very long time tried to wipe out Christianity, and some of that's even happening today. Now, we can't keep going through history. Aren't you having fun through this? I'm having a good time. I don't know if you're having any fun at all, but me, I'm just having a great time. I was like, I get to talk about history, and they have to listen. It's so fun, you know? But, you know, the other thing, too, it's a very short period of time, but this was massive, is Genghis Khan and the Mongols came sweeping down. They took over huge chunks of some of the caliphates, right, of Islamic caliphates, and they, they went up onto the Hungarian peninsula, or plateau, excuse me, all the way, they pushed all the way, they got far all the way into Eastern Europe and in 1200, but about 1210, but by 1220, 1230, they were all gone. They all left. And one of the things is is that the Mongols hated Christianity. Many of them converted to Islam. And the reason why is because Christianity wasn't militant enough for them. They didn't like all this talk of peace and love and all that kind of stuff. And so they converted to that. But they they tried to wipe out Christianity. Then uh, how many of you grew up, like me, loving those old kung fu movies, right? Bruce Lee movies. I love those movies, man. I, I love especially when they would dub the words, you know, and they go, hello, are you? Did, did you love that? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I got a kick out of that. I, I just, oh, you got to watch these old kung fu movies. Well, a lot of people don't realize that in China, kung fu is a religion, okay? And they, uh, in China in 1899, you can Google this, they had what is called the Boxer Rebellion, and they were all these kung fu guys because they box, right? So they're called the boxers. And what they did is it was one of the biggest ethnic cleansing of foreigners and Christian missionaries in the history of China. They massacred all of these priests and missionaries. They drove many out. They went from village and town to town to town. They destroyed churches and monasteries and burned them to the ground. And that's why in a lot of ways... You can't find any really old churches in China because during the Boxer Rebellion, they destroyed them all. They went through China and they tried to wipe it out. And guess where the church is growing the fastest in the globe today? It's in China. 
Isn't it amazing? We, we can't get into the 1900s, the 20th century, unless we talk about fascism and the rise of all the fascism and the Third Reich and Nazism. They, they, he did not have a good view of the church, and he only uh, tried to take control of the Lutheran church and used it for his own purposes. And one of the few people that stood up against him was a, uh, a pastor, a Lutheran pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he spoke against them, the Third Reich, and called it evil. He ended up being arrested, and he was executed two weeks before his prison was freed by the Allied forces. We, all, we also have to talk about uh, the communism and the rise of communism. Communism hates Christianity, absolutely hates it, does everything to destroy it. When the Bolsheviks took over uh, Russia, what they did is they went through and they, they wiped out as many churches. They seized assets of priests and, uh, in the Russian Orthodox Church. They, they tried to squelch it. And any type of unaffiliated Christian group, they sent to die in a gulag in Siberia. Uh, when Chinese had their cultural revolution under Mao Zedong, they hated Christians. And they went and they tried to stamp out Christianity. What's amazing about every one of these movements throughout our history has never, ever once been able to defeat the kingdom of God called the church here on earth. The church has continued to grow, and it continues to grow. Uh, what's interesting now is there are estimates between 2.8 and 3 billion people worldwide who are Christians. A lot, a lot of times, like at UN and other places that post things, they always say, well, there's only 2.2 or 2.3. But the reason why they have such low estimates is because nobody knows how many Christians in China actually exist. And nobody knows how many Christians in India actually exist. Because whether you, in, in China, it's illegal to be a Christian. And since the last probably seven or eight years under Xi Jinping and the CCP, they have brutally cracked down on churches. And in India, in many provinces, it's still illegal to be Christian, okay? And in Islamic countries, if you convert from Christianity, it's a death sentence. You can be imprisoned and you can be put to death simply because you converted to Christianity. But in spite of all of this, it continues to grow because the king, there is no end to his kingdom. There's no end to it. And on his shoulders, it will rest. One of the reasons why there's no end and it continues to grow is because his church transcends all cultural and language barriers. All cultural and language barriers. In Hinduism and in Islam and even uh, forms of ancestral uh, traditions and Buddhism, in order to practice that religion, you must convert to that culture. Like, for instance, if you want to become a Muslim, you have to convert to the culture of Islam and learn to speak Arabic because the Quran can only be read in Arabic by Muslims. What's fascinating about the kingdom of Jesus is it transcends cultures. It transcends language. It's a propositional truth that can uh, be communicated in any language, any tongue, any tribe, any nation. 
What it does is it enters into the cultural norms of that society, uses the forms of that cultural society to express the propositional truth that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins, and he was raised from the dead by the power of God, and he lives now forevermore. He is your King, and he is your Lord. That can be communicated in any language known unto man. It's a beautiful thing in what it can do. And then once it's in that culture, it changes, right? Like if you came from up north and you have a lot of uh, Dutch reform in your blood, you know, you're really into fruitcakes at Christmas time, right? I mean, those things are heavy. They work really well as doorstops or a treat after a big meal, right? I mean, they're heavy. But down in Mexico, Christians don't pass around fruitcakes. They pass them around what? Tamales. They give you tamales, right? And you say, okay, if I was a religious person, how, how can a tamale be okay and a fruitcake not, or vice versa? You see, what religions do is they get stuck on the forms. But the propositional truth of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is that it always expands and it always expands why? Because it is a truth that transcends culture, transcends language, whereas other religions don't do that. Now, you're like, why in the world would I need a history lesson on a Sunday morning two weeks before Christmas? Why in the world would that? Well, let me tell you why. Because if the kingdom of Christ if the kingdom of Jesus came on the day that he was born and you look back throughout all history and you hear the testimony of God, you see the testimony of the Holy Spirit, you have thousands of years of victory after victory after victory, then why would you ever believe that when you're in the kingdom of God, there is no victory in your life? Tell me, why? Why do we walk around with our heads bowed? Why do we walk around with the burdens of the world on our shoulders when we have thousands of years of the kingdom of Christ has no end? It has no defeat. Oh, there's suffering and there's difficulties and there's battles. That never changes. That's life. We are promised that, that we will have to work through that. But in the end, the victory is assured. The, the, we, we are winners because we are overcomers. His kingdom overcomes and wins and defeats any kingdom brought against it, whether it's earthly or spiritual or ideological. The kingdom of Jesus Christ always wins over evil. It wins in the spiritual realm. It wins it over the evil of the ideological realm. It even wins in the material realm. Many people are not aware that Back in the 80s, do you remember when uh, Russia collapsed, USSR collapsed, and it just fell apart? A lot of people don't know that the Romanian Revolution, where the whole thing started to come unraveled, what happened, all because a secret police under Ceausescu, which was a dictator and a puppet of uh, Russia, Moscow, what happened is their secret police started persecuting a pastor by the name of Laszlo Tokas. You can go on, you get on Google, you read about this. Laszlo Tokas, what happened is he was a critic. They came in and they said, we're taking your church away from you and we're going to take your apartment away from you and we're taking your rations, 
you know, that allow you to buy food in a communist country away from you. So you can't buy any food, you don't have any place to live, and you can't preach in your church anymore. You know what he did? He said, you want to bet? And so he stood outside and he started preaching. And what happened is thousands, tens of thousands of Hungarians and Romanians from all students from all the universities started getting on trains and going there just to hear him preach as he talked about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And guess what happened? Even the security forces and the military surrounded them and the the soldiers got out of their tanks and they came down. And if you go back and if you remember, this is on TV, is they started lighting candles. In the darkest evil, the kingdom of God is a light and it always defeats the evil. And today it is a free democratic society with its own parliament. The kingdom of God always wins over injustice. Have you ever experienced injustice in your life? The kingdom of Jesus is not about surviving what was done to you. It's not about tolerating or coping with what happened to you. It's about having victory over what happened to you. It's the ability to look evil in the face and justice against you in the face and quote Joseph. What you meant for evil, what you meant to destroy, what you meant to steal, what you meant to violate, God has redeemed it for good. The kingdom of God is so powerful, it wins over your own brokenness. How many of you feel about that Taylor Swift song, The Antihero, where she has a verse in it? She goes, hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me, right? Do you ever feel like you're the problem in your relationships? Do you feel like you sabotage your relationships? Do you have a marriage where you have the same fight and the same argument with your spouse all the time? And you go, no matter how hard we try, we can't change. Well, if you live in the kingdom of this world, that's true. But when you live in the kingdom of Jesus, you have victory over your own brokenness. The kingdom of God brings victory over every failure, mistake, bad decision that you ever made. The kingdom of Jesus brings victory over disease. Why? Because whether you live or die, you won. Whether you live or die, you've won. Does Jesus heal? Yes. Does he heal today? Yes. Will he heal in the future? Yes. But that's not what makes the victory so awesome. The victory that's so awesome is it doesn't matter whether this body lives or dies because eventually it will, right? There's one thing about life. No one makes it out alive. <laughs> but you have an eternal building made not by human hands. And that gift is waiting for you. Paul says, oh, man, sometimes I have a hard time. I don't know if I should go or stay. You know, if I stay, it's going to help you out. But if I go, well, that's going to be awesome. You see, that's called victory. That you can't defeat someone who has a winner's mindset regardless of whether they live or die because it's a win for them. You know, the kingdom of Jesus wins over every damage that you've experienced from toxic relationships in your life. It brings you victory over divorce. It brings you victory over toxic management or uh, your family of origin dysfunction. It 
co-workers that stab you in the back. It doesn't matter. The kingdom of Jesus brings victory over that. I mean, if the, if the communists and the Mongols and Islam cannot stamp out the kingdom of Jesus Christ, he certainly can handle your unruly co-workers. The kingdom of Jesus wins over negative self-perceptions. Some of us live through life, maybe because of injustice in the past or bad family of origin experiences. Uh, we have low self-esteem or struggle with self-worth or a lack of value, lack of meaning or a lack of a sense of purpose. Guess what? The kingdom of Jesus wins over all of those things in your life life. It wins over despair. It wins over discouragement. It wins over a loss of hope. It wins over the sense that your life is stuck. Things will never change because you can't change. Well, my friends, I am here to tell you, if you can look at 2,000 years of human history and see that the kingdom of God has never been defeated, then can, you can look at the 20 or 30 years of your own life and realize that God is at work when you live in his kingdom, and his kingdom always wins. Evil is still real. We must fight it, and we must defeat it. But his kingdom always wins. We will have suffering. We'll have difficulty. We'll have struggles. That may be the name of the game in this life, but his kingdom always wins. He's the perfect king because the government rests upon his shoulders. And though the evil one thought he had won by beating to him a pulp and throwing him in a grave after hanging him on a cross, he was sorely mistaken because he doesn't know what real victory is. He doesn't know where real power comes from. He doesn't know where real perseverance comes from, where real hope comes from. It comes from one place and one place only, and that is the perfection of our King Jesus. We are not promised freedom from problems or strife or uh, difficulties in this life, but we are promised victory over them in the kingdom of Jesus because his kingdom always wins. As Paul said it best, when you know this and you look at your problems, you look at your, your difficulties, and you know that Jesus is the perfect king who has won, if God is for you, who in this world can be against you? Let's stand for closing prayer. Lord Jesus, you are a perfect king, and that is totally awesome. Amen.